see there is uh, who is God? And I, I prayed a lot about this and just uh, wanted to deliver a message uh, that, and it may be a little bit remedial for some of us, because I know some of these things are, are things that we talk about quite regularly here at Berean. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, but I was thinking that I think in order to, to properly know who we worship, it's important to know you know, why we're worshiping him and, and vice versa, because uh, I, I think it never hurts to really study the attributes of God. Um, obviously, God is not somebody that we can just shrink down and explain on our own terms uh, completely, uh, but there are certain attributes that we can know about him uh, that the Bible teaches us. Um, so, uh, like I said, some of this may be a little bit remedial, but uh, I hope that uh, God will bless you through my attempts to uh, preach his word. So, uh, please, if you can, uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be reading uh, verses 23 through 26. And uh, here, uh, Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, and he says, <clears throat> But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Father, I just uh, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, I just pray that you would give me the right words uh, to uh, preach your word. Uh, we just uh, give you the thanks for this place to, uh, to come and worship you. And please help us just uh, maybe understand how we can... Uh, worship you more effectively and help us to learn a little bit more about who you are and uh, what your will for our lives is, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I've got a number of uh, points that you can fill in on your non-existent listening sheets tonight. Uh, so, um, the, uh, the first one, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, what we can know about God. Um, so what are some of the things that, uh, that the Bible teaches us um, about the about God the Father. Um, number one, God is beyond human comprehension, and I think that kind of goes without saying. Uh, it's fairly self-evident, but, um, you know, it's important to remember that we, we oftentimes like to think that we as human beings are capable of understanding anything. Anything in existence is possible for us to comprehend entirely. And there's nothing that hu the human mind is incapable of, uh, of uh, wrapping itself around, or, or there's nothing that we're incapable of comprehending, or so we like to think. Um, and it is possible for us to understand a, a great many things uh, that exist in the universe we live in. But the human mind can only comprehend things that are less complex than itself. So if we could comprehend or fully understand God, he wouldn't be God. Uh, he'd have to be something equal or inferior to our own intellect. So it kind of goes without saying that God is beyond our comprehension. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that no man can comprehend God or understand everything that he does. Job 37, verse 5 says, God thundereth marvelously with his voice. Great things doeth he which we cannot comprehend. Uh, 38, uh, Job 38, uh, 1 through 4 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, thou hast understanding. So I'm just going to start off the message by saying that I cannot, you know, fully explain God, uh, nor would I dare to, to claim to be able to. But I can relate what the Bible tells us about him. Uh, second point, uh, 
God is triune. And uh, this is one attribute of him that uh, I think you can say falls squarely into the beyond human comprehension category. Um, interestingly enough, the actual word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. Nevertheless, um, both the Old and New Testaments clearly teach us that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are each equally and eternally the one true God. Uh, in Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus mentioned the Trinity when instructing his disciples how to baptize people. He said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. 1 John 5, 7 tells us, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, I can't possibly hope to explain how uh, the simultaneous unity and trinity of the Godhead works, because I honestly don't think any human properly can. Uh, It seems like a paradox to us, because there's nothing that we can reasonably compare it to. There's nothing that we know of that has those same attributes. And so I think it's safe to say that our minds aren't capable of processing things on that level. Uh, Another thing that the Bible tells us is that God is eternal and unchanging. Uh, The Bible indicates that God is not bound by our concept of time. God is beyond time. Um, He didn't come into existence at a certain point within time, and he will not perish at some point at the end of time. Instead, uh, he claims that uh, rather than having a beginning, he is the beginning and the end of all things. Revelation 22, verse 13 Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So you could say that God exists outside of time. God is eternal. In John 8, 56 through 58, Jesus was speaking to the Jews and said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Abraham had a beginning. Jesus, or God, is eternal. He is also unchanging. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is in no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So these are very important things to, to understand and for us to remember about God, because sometimes we tend to forget some of these things. God is perfect and holy. Uh, The Bible makes it clear that, unlike us, God is perfect and holy in every way. God's character is entirely good, and there is no evil in him. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, says, Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. 1 John 1, 5 says, This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is, in, and in him is no darkness at all. In the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, uh, verses 1 and 2, say, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I the Lord God, uh, I'm sorry, for I the Lord your God am holy. God is all-powerful, and sovereign. Uh, The Bible tells us that God, being the creator of the universe, is all-powerful, omnipotent, and omnipresent. Makes sense. If he's God, then he would naturally be all three of those things. And since he is the highest authority there is, God answers to nobody. Not us, not the angels, not anybody. God answers to himself because he's God. He's perfect and holy, 
and all of his actions are perfectly consistent with his character. And as sinful men and women, uh, like I said, we're often too forgetful of uh, some of God's attributes, and uh, we try to understand his actions in a purely human context. Um, But we have to remember that because he's God and not like us, we rarely have the capacity to understand any of his actions. Um, After all, if he's too big to fit inside our heads, how can we presume to understand his ways? Uh, The Bible backs this up. In Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, we read, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God is sovereign. One important point that I wanted to make is that God is not an old guy with a beard. Uh, Throughout history, and uh, even today, um, artists and and even uh, everyday people have a tendency to want to see God as a human being. But, and it's true that he created us in his own image and that he came to dwell among us in human form. But that doesn't mean that the creator of the universe looks just like us. After all, the Bible clearly says that God is a spirit and man is earthly. Depicting God in this way is not only inaccurate, it's disrespectful and wrong. Uh, if you think about it, it's actually, uh, these are graven images which uh, violate the, the Ten Commandments. Um, and so I, I guess you could say that considering considering all this and considering some of the other things we've been talking about, anything that tries to shrink God down to our size is actually insulting to him. For example, uh, referring to the Almighty God as the man upstairs uh, isn't something we ought to do because God isn't a man and he doesn't live upstairs. Um, By comparison, uh, the Jews in ancient times did not even directly refer to Jehovah God by his name. Out of reverence, they would refer to him simply as Hashem, or the name. And so, it kind of gives you an interesting contrast there in terms of uh, the level of reverence that, uh, that we have uh, in our society. Another point I wanted to uh, discuss is uh, who God is in relation to creation. God is creative, and I think that's self-evident, but it's something that we often overlook. He spoke everything into existence. The book of Genesis gives us a very detailed account of uh, how he created the heavens and the earth, uh, which by now I'm sure we're all probably quite familiar with. Um, But the Bible doesn't detail every single thing and creature that God created. But when you look around, you can't help but be amazed at the variety of creatures and natural wonders he's made. So I think it can be said that too often we overlook God's amazing creativity. Uh, After all, who can look at his creation, whether it's a colorful sunset, a... uh, See, I think we had some pictures. Oh, anyway, sorry, never mind. Uh, <laughs> whether it's a colorful sunset, a newborn child, a flower, or uh, a nebula in deep space and not be humbled and awed by uh, the magnificent beauty of God's creation. Um, the Bible tells us that God deserves the credit for these things because he alone spoke them into existence. Uh, Hebrew 11, Hebrews 11.3 tells us, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. So, uh, the next point is that God is glorified by creation. And uh, these are some of the things that I was just talking about. Uh, my next example, which uh, kind of ties in with uh, the, uh, the image that's on the screen here, um, 
Okay. Pablo Picasso is one of the most recognized and respected figures in 20th century art. Guernica, which he painted in 1937, uh, is one of his most well-known works. It was inspired by his horror at the German bombing of the city of Guernica during the Spanish Civil War. Um, as you can see, it's a fairly disturbing scene, um, but it's regarded as one of the most important paintings of the last 100 years. On the more accessible side, uh, <laughs> uh, Monet's water lilies uh, from the late 1800s are a pleasure to look at. Um, and you know there are plenty of other examples of work from, uh, from other notable artists uh, throughout history who have left their mark on history. Um, and although the paintings that we're looking at here are, are quite different from one another, they all showcase the abilities of their individual creators. So simply put, the creation always points back to the creator. Uh, and so having said that, God's creation glorifies him as the ultimate artist because our reality, everything that we see around us, which we sometimes recall, uh, regard as nature, uh, but creation is his handiwork. Uh, the next point is uh, a little bit difficult to understand, but uh, it's something that's no less important. God is glorified by his triumph over evil. Uh, the Bible obviously indicates that uh, creation exists in order to give glory to God. And we know that God is all-powerful and perfectly holy. However, for some reason, for whatever reason, God has allowed evil to exist. The Bible doesn't provide us with a single definitive answer as to why he's allowed evil to exist. Uh, but, like I said, we've already determined that creation exists to give God glory. With that in mind, we can say that without the existence of evil, the concept of good loses most or all of its meaning. And to me, it, it seems that God has seen fit to bring glory to himself by triumphing over evil. You have to have that contrast. So, um, we know that God is all-powerful and that he cannot be overwhelmed by any force. So, therefore, we can infer that God has a morally good reason for allowing evil to exist. We don't necessarily know exactly what that is, but uh, it's safe to infer that. And, you know, people ask questions like, you know, how can a loving, all-powerful God allow bad things to happen to good people? Like, uh, you know, tragedy and sickness, suffering and death. I mean, there are a lot of bad things that do occur in our world. Um, but the bottom line is that we just can't understand God's plan. And um, we, just, we just can't. So I, I once heard somebody say that our lives are like threads in a grand tapestry, and God is the weaver. So we can't see the big picture or even understand why bad things may happen. But if you've been a Christian for very long, you probably already know that God sometimes uses tragedy and sorrow to bring a greater joy later on and more glory to himself. Uh, there have been plenty of examples of uh, people with uh, ruined marriages that were, that were saved by the Lord and, and brought back into uh, a greater glory and uh, just all kinds of things. So it's fairly obvious, I think, to, to Christians, especially seasoned Christians, that, uh, that tragedy and sorrow uh, can be used for God's greater glory um, and, and sometimes are, are necessary in order to correct us as well. So we also know that uh, all these things are, are byproducts of sin, and God has shown us that in the Bible and in our own lives that he has triumphed over sin and its consequences. Next uh, next area of discussion I wanted to cover is who God is to mankind. Uh, what is his uh, relationship like to, uh, to the human race? The first important thing to note is that God is love. 
And one thing that fascinates me about the Lord is just that he can be so infinitely complex in some aspects, but yet so simple in others. And so uh, a small child can understand uh, all that uh, we need to know, to know about God and, and how to be saved and everything. But uh, God is also so infinitely complex that you could study him for the rest of your life and never even begin to scratch the surface of, uh, of who God is. But God is love, and that's possibly the simplest yet most important thing to know about him. Uh, in 1 John 4, um, verses 7 and 8, we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And in some ways, you could say that the entire Bible is a love letter written to God, uh, written by God for his people. In the Old Testament, it was the Jews, the, pe the people of Israel. And in the New Testament, um, it's written to uh, believers in Christ. So you could say that uh, God is love, and the Bible clearly shows that. God is personal. Another very important point. The God of the Bible is clearly a personal God. He is someone that you can know. It's one of the main reasons the Bible exists, actually. Um, you can learn everything you need to know about him right in here. But even if you read this book 500 times and memorize every single word, you'll still never even come close to comprehending God in his entirety. He is a personal God, but he's also an infinite God. And we need to remember that. God judges sin. Sin entered the human race through Adam, and it's a terminal disease that we're all born with. This disease makes us unclean and separates us from God. Uh, as we said, he's holy and perfect and uh, cannot commune with anything that is not. Unfortunately, we're pretty much the polar opposite by default, so we need help from God. Um, however, God, being all-powerful, is uniquely qualified to judge our actions. He does this temporally to reward or correct us during the course of our lives, and he also is an eternal judge, um, and he determines um, who uh, he brings to heaven and who he sends to hell, and I'll be discussing that in more depth in a moment. But uh, this leads to another important point, is that God has a chosen people. Uh, God's always provided a way for his people to be saved, both in the Old Testament and in the New. In the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel were God's sole chosen people who he had fellowship with. Uh, through Moses, he provided the system of ceremonial law, as we've learned, um, as the only accept acceptable way for them to maintain that fellowship with him. Uh, God provided all the laws and the instructions that they needed. He even gave them, he even provided them with the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices the, that they were to offer. Uh, and he, it's important to note that uh, through the law, he provided clear written instructions on how things were to be conducted. And uh, this is also the case with the tabernacle, with uh, things like the ark. Um, God provided very clear documentation, you might say, as far as uh, how uh, his people were to uh, conduct themselves and to uh, work with him and, and create things for him and things like that. Uh, but he also gave them a saving faith in a Messiah that would one day perfectly fulfill the law. Um, and uh, the Jews that looked forward to the Messiah that would uh, be the ultimate fulfillment, um, that is, uh, we've learned that that is how their people were saved in the Old Testament. Uh, in the New Testament, um, God is Jesus. Uh, John 1, verse 14, uh, we read, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, 
the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when the Son of God, which is also referred to as the Word of God, became incarnate and was born as Jesus, he did this to save his people by offering his own life as a final sacrifice for sin. See, because he was born of a virgin, he wasn't corrupted by this uh, hereditary disease of sin, you might say. Uh, He didn't inherit the sin nature, as we know. Uh, Because he was entirely human and entirely God at the same time, which, you know, I don't know how that works, but I know that that was definitely the case. Uh, He told us that he and the Father were one and the same. In John 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life, and he was the acceptable sacrifice that God promised his people would one day arrive. Which leads right into my next point. Uh, God saves his chosen people. Um, In the New Testament, um, like the Old Testament, God provides the way to have fellowship with him. But it is through Jesus, uh, the final sacrifice. Jesus is the Messiah who fulfilled the ceremonial law. And faith in his sacrifice is the only way to gain fellowship with God. Um, In John 14, 6, Jesus himself explains, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And just like in the Old Testament, God provided clear written instructions on how we may have a relationship with him in the Bible. It's all right here. Throughout history, uh, God has shown that he provides everything that people need to become saved from the eternal consequences of their sin. He provides the faith, he provides the strength, and he provides the means. He's even supplied the necessary sacrifice. But who or what determines who gets saved and who doesn't? I mean, does this just happen by chance? Let's think about this. Uh, this is something that we've talked about at length, but uh, this is an important thing to, uh, to think about because uh, we need to make sure that we give God the glory and salvation. But uh, the Bible clearly teaches, uh, like I said, uh, that God is omnipotent or all-knowing. He is eternal and outside time, and he is all-powerful and sovereign. The Bible also says that by default, nobody seeks after God on their own. In Romans 3, 9 through 11, we hear from the Apostle Paul. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles, they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. So, if God knows everything, is not bound by time, is all-powerful, and no person seeks after him on their own, then where does that leave us? Well, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 8, we hear from Paul again. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. It's all spelled out right there. Um, This verse clearly tells us that God predestinates those who he chose before the foundation of the world to be adopted as children. So God chooses who he saves, you might say. Um, 
we don't choose to be saved by our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nobody chooses to become a Christian because they think it's a good idea. I mean, have you ever heard of anybody deciding to become a Christian because it's, you know, the right thing to do? I mean, it's, it doesn't happen, but by the, it, it's a work of God. Uh, the Bible says we're not even interested in the things of God unless the Holy Spirit enlightens us and points us toward Christ. It's, his, it's by his grace that our eyes are opened and we can see the truth. In Ephesians 2, verse 8, Paul states very clearly, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. I think Pastor Smith said it best last week. Um, this whole debate over being chosen and not and all that, um, it's kind of beside the point, because, I mean, if, if you're saved, you've been chosen by God. It's, it's that simple. Um, but only God knows who is chosen, and we don't. It's not our job or even in our ability to try to figure out who will and won't be saved. Um, you know, it's our responsibility to, to present the gospel to everybody. Um, and like I said, I know this is, uh, this, this is kind of remedial stuff for most of you, but uh, it, it's a very important thing for us to understand properly because it's a truth, as we know, that a lot of churches have drifted away from, they've drifted away from this, and a lot of churches actually just outright deny that this is true. Um, but the bottom line is that God, and God alone, deserves all the glory for your salvation. Last important point is uh, who God is to you. So if you're a Christian, and I'm fairly certain that most of you here tonight are, but uh, if you're already a believer in Christ, then uh, you probably already know that many of these things to be true by personal experience. Um, Christ is our sacrifice that God has provided. He's opened the door to fellowship in a relationship with the Almighty and eternal life. Uh, because of him and what he's done for us, we have no reason to fear the eternal consequences of the sins that we've committed after this life is over. He has conquered sin once and for all for us. However, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, it's important that you understand a few key things. I've already talked about how God is perfect, righteous, and holy. But after you die whether it's tomorrow or 50 years from now, the Bible says that you'll be judged according to your actions. We all will. It also plainly states that faith in Christ's sacrifice for your own sins is the only thing that will keep you from having to pay the penalty for the sinful things you've done after you die. John 3.16 is, of course, one of our favorite verses in the Bible. But if we keep reading through verse 19, we learn more about God's plan for salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. The, con the condemnation referred to here is, of course, hell, uh, where those who have ignored or rejected Christ's sacrifice will be eternally punished, cut off from God's love with no hope of ever coming back. In John eight twenty four, we hear from Jesus himself, and he says, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Now, I'm not trying to scare anybody here who's not a Christian uh, into receiving Christ as a sacrifice for their sins. Uh, but God's word does describe hell as a place of unimaginable suffering. 
And it is important to understand what believers in Christ are actually saved from. But if you've been paying attention, you know that I already explained that choosing God entirely of your own will just doesn't happen. It's not possible. You must be drawn to salvation by the Holy Spirit. And I pray if anybody listening here tonight is not a believer and God has spoken to you through this message, that you would answer him and receive Christ as a sacrifice for your own sins. Um, And uh, the last scripture verse I just uh, wanted to cover is uh, very important. Romans 10, 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Lord, I just uh, thank you again for this opportunity to, to come up here and, and preach your word tonight. I just pray that uh, that people be blessed through this uh, and that uh, you might just continue to draw people to you through the preaching of your word. Uh, I just pray that you would you would just save some people, Lord, that, uh, that you would just use this message to maybe just stimulate some thought or at least uh, plant some seeds in people's hearts, Lord. I just uh, know that salvation is by you, and uh, we just pray that uh, you would just continue, to working in our, continue working in our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.